Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone who changed my life in a major way, a huge, huge guest for me, John Ginoli of the band Pansy Division and also of the band Outnumbered. This is a big one. Someone who's in two different bands that I like, you know... (laughs) You know, I get excited about these ones. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page and an Instagram page, and all of those are, are turned out of punk on their respective things. I guess they're they're really the same thing. Uh, all that stuff is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and also someone who was I'm another huge fan of Pansy Division, too, um, as well, growing up. This is a big one for Tristan and I. Big one. We You'll hear about that in the interview. Don't worry. We get to that. Um, but anyway, Tristan, thank you for everything you do for this show. I love you, buddy. Because he has been, oh my gosh, he's been working hard. And we've been working on getting a, a really cool mix of guests coming up. And, and yeah. So anyway, thank you, Tristan, for all you do. If you want to support this show, the best way to support this show is by... Telling everyone you know about it, just letting everyone know uh, out there that you enjoy this podcast and that we're doing it here the way we're doing it. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. Thank you to everyone who does do that, even the people that give it low ratings. Thank you for the, thank you for the criticism. I'm, I'm take that to heart. Uh, also, um, there's a Patreon page, so please, if you would like more uh, turned out of punk, there's a Patreon page. And you can support us over there as well. And thank you so much to everyone that does. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Van, who came uh, Vans, sorry, who came aboard a few years ago and said, "Keep doing the show. Uh, you know, just, just, you know, just we don't want you losing your money out of your own pocket doing it." So uh, they, uh, you know, help contribute to keep this thing going. So thank you very much to them for their continued support of this podcast and letting me book whoever I want to book, you know, like, look at the, look at the weird trip this thing has been as far as guests go from the very beginning. And most recently it's been a a really fun ride with, I think, uh, a cool mix of all sorts of guests, you know, in the last few, um, few weeks, few months, you know, we've been, you know, Tristan, once again, thank you, Tristan. Thanks for Vans for supporting it, but thank you for Tristan for, uh, you know, for doing this thing. Speaking of doing this thing, when Tristan hit me up and told me that John Ginoli from Pansy Division was going to be coming on the show, it was, uh, oh, we were both really excited about this. We, of course, had Chris Freeman from the band Pansy Division come on a few, I guess that was like a, a, a year ago now or something, a while back. Listen to that episode. It was a fantastic episode. And the thing that was amazing with Chris Freeman is he's someone who, much like John, had two kind of very distinct careers in music that are both interesting and both completely independent of one another. Uh, so when John was coming on the show, you know, I went back and I listened to the outnumbered stuff and it just hit me, my God, this band's awesome. Like <laughs> outside of Pansy Division, which, you know, I'll get to in a second, but just as like their own kind of thing, the outnumbered are a fantastic band. They put out two LPs on Homestead. They aren't too expensive. They also have their own self-release single before that. Um, yeah, like super underrated band, like a fantastic group. Um, so, you know, getting John on the show, knowing I get to talk to him about that. But then, of course, Pansy Vision, which, uh, you know, I, I kind of get into this on the show. So you're going to hear me kind of, you know, awkwardly get into this thing as well with John. But I just think they were such an important band, you know, and such a such a pivotal band for people around me and just, you know, I'd like, 
I don't think it's overstating it to say that they save lives, you know, by, by going out there and telling people that felt vulnerable, that felt unaccepted, like, you know, who felt dismissed or who felt marginalized or oppressed or, or worse, like LGBTQ two spirited people that they're, you know, within punk rock, I should say, but like that there was, you know, hope, you know, and, uh, and it's a really a, a very important band. And I think a band that's, you know, underrated is a way that you describe bands for not being appreciated musically, but I think underappreciated is a better way to put it. Underrated musically too, because you go back and listen to those records, you know, Tristan and I have been talking about the last few days ever since this, well, I guess weeks, I think the last few days when we decided that this episode was going to be the next episode and just going back and listening to uh, Pansy Division stuff. And it's, you know, they're like a really underrated and underappreciated band. And so, Oh, I'm very excited that you get to hear this conversation. I, I really enjoyed doing this one. I really, I even liked listening back to this one and edit it because that's normally very tedious, but I, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot. A lot of bands I came out of this, you know, on a, a notepad wanting to check out and, uh, it goes a lot of really cool places. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy John Ginoli on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> John, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is so great to talk to you. Thank you. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a, now as an adult, a massive fan of the outnumbered and, but also Pansy Division as a young person had such an incredible impression, uh, left an incredible impression, I should say, on my brother and myself and, and a whole our whole peer group and meeting you was such a defining moment for me and kind of set the tone for how I want to treat people that come up to me and punish me at shows, um, in my band. So I really appreciate you letting me punish you again. <laughs> okay. Uh, no problem. Let's go. Okay. Well, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is John, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I'm old enough that punk came along when I was 16. So, and I got into it right away. Um, I had a friend, uh, she was a year older than me and she helped me get into a lot of music. Um, like got me into the New York dolls. And then in 1976, when I was 16, we used to read, she usually used to buy them. Uh, we'd read a uh, hit parader magazine which was focused on a lot of New York rock stuff, and then Cream Magazine. Those are the two things that we really relied on for our information about uh, about interesting bands. So, you know, my tastes were still pretty formative at that point. But, um, but in 76, she bought the first Ramones album as soon as it came out. <clears throat> and so we we're listening to it at her house, and she... I, you know, we're listening to the first Ramones album, and our first reaction is, this is pretty good, but is it a joke? <laughs> like, it was it was just so different, and it was really obviously intentionally different, that we thought, <clears throat> are they, like, are they really smart, and they're playing dumb, or are they really dumb? <laughs> it's like their, their songs were so, were so minimal, um, but we uh, concluded pretty fast that they were actually smart. Um, but, you know, they were disturbing, too. So, you know, the, that first Ramones album, there's, and, and, you know, other Ramones albums, too. There's just a lot of casual violence, and that was disturbing. But I think we took it as kind of a, 
horror movie kind of thing. Like it wasn't real. It was kind of fake, fake scariness. Like I wasn't scared by it, but I was just like, what are they talking about? So it, it was, it was something coming from a different place. But, um, when I was a really little kid, I had albums by the monkeys and I loved the monkeys. Um, and I remember that all the, you know, all those early sixties records that I liked, they were all two minutes long. So when the Ramones came along, we were doing those kinds of two minute songs. I was just like, Oh, this is just like the stuff I listened to when I was a kid, except it was darker and weirder. Um, so I really got into that. And, um, so that's, you know, like the end of 76, like the album had been out for about six months when I bought it, but I've been listening to my friend's copy. And that was the, the first, the first thing. And then I started reading, I think that was the year I started reading Trouser Press, which was a New York magazine that covered a lot of indie stuff and had started covering, and they were Anglophiles. So they were writing about the new stuff coming from England. And somewhere along the line, I think it was Trouser Press, that I read that there was this band, the Sex Pistols, and um, they had this single out. It was called Anarchy in the UK. And I thought, that sounds really interesting. So I think it was an ad that was in Trouser Press. You, you couldn't get these records where I lived in Peoria, Illinois, uh, which had record stores, uh, but didn't have imports. So... Um, I remember ordering this from a record store in New York that stocked these records. And so I got Anarchy in the UK, the original EMI copy. So I'm listening to it at home, and on one listen, I thought, hmm, I don't know. So I played it again, <clears throat> and second time I was like, huh, huh, that's interesting. And by the third time, I loved it. And... I quickly, by listening to the Ramones and Sex Pistols, was presented with a dilemma, which was I was already not a popular kid at my high school. I was not somebody who had a lot of friends. And I thought, if I listen to this music, it's going to start pushing me even further away from the mainstream of my high school and people I know. But I thought, I think I need to follow this. I need to follow where this is going. So punk for me, from the very beginning, seemed like like a deliberate break from the other things I'd been listening to and like helping me choose the path that I was eventually going to be on. And this was way before I figured out that I was gay. But I, I, had an, I just had a lot of confusion for a long time. But punk rock, I got started with some of the foundational punk rock records. That's so awesome. So, like, with the punk rock stuff that you were kind of getting into, what was, like, what was the stuff that you were into prior to that, like, other than New York Dolls? Were you into the Stooges? Were they on your kind of radar or the, New or the Velvet Underground or any of that kind of stuff? I had heard Raw Power. Uh, my friend had the record. But that was one that I kind of didn't get. It was too raw. Mm -hmm. Um you know, when for years I I thought, God, you know, this is a great record, but it's it's just mixed so badly. It's so rough. So I, you know, and then in the late 90s, they remixed it. Iggy remixed it and made it not that it was cleaner, but it just wasn't so muddy. And I thought, 
yeah, this is great. This is what I've been, I mean, I got into raw power a few years later, but, um, uh, but then after a while I realized, oh, I like the, the remix version, but actually now I like the original version better. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like lo-fi, lo-fi, but sometimes I want to listen to one rather than the other. It's, I can go back and forth, but no, I didn't get into the Stooges right away, but I, pl- I started saving money so I could start getting all the British imports. So I started getting, uh, the clash and x-ray specs. And, um, um, I mean, it's mostly English bands at first. Um, but then there was like the dead boys. I remember getting pair Ubu and, and it being too weird for me, at least for that moment. And, uh, but then I really got into the clash Mm-hmm. And that first album that didn't come out in the U.S. So, uh, and then I was buying singles. It was easy to get the singles were fairly cheap. The albums seemed to be more expensive. So I was buying singles when I could, but I would have bought a lot more records if A, I had more money and B, I was in a place where I could actually shop for them in a store, which I couldn't do for a few years. But, but like Wire and, uh, The Damned and, um, uh, you know, that was the kind of stuff, uh, you'd read about these things and you would order records and sometimes they were good and sometimes they weren't. I remember getting this record by Cherry Vanilla, who was a, a New York punkster, but it was, but it was actually pretty crappy. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is, oh, so this is a punk cash in. Oh, okay. I, I was already figuring that out pretty fast, but, um. But yeah, it was all records, and it was just me and my friend, um, and there was no scene. Uh, Peoria is about 150 miles southwest of Chicago, and you know, did have a great record store where I could get all the U.S. releases, uh, even obscure stuff. But I couldn't. Um, uh, but I just, you know, didn't have anybody to share it with. Uh, but I did a fanzine. You did, and I did a fanzine in '77 and '78. I put out like uh, nine issues of it, which That's is awesome. For the most part, really embarrassing to me now. <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I want to reprint it. Well, I went back and read everything, and it's like, yeah, I don't want. It's sort of like, oh, being a pimple faced teenager, I just really don't want to show that to the world at this point <laughs> in my life. I understand. But, but um were you doing interviews for that or anything or was it just like reviews no it was all reviews but i did get some people from other parts of the country to write in and contribute things so somebody wrote about devo in san francisco somebody wrote about uh seeing the ramones um but there was other stuff in there too it wasn't strictly punk so you're asking what else i liked before i got into punk absolutely so so i was really into i would say well my life changed at 15 when I heard Springsteen and Patti Smith at the same time. And I, I loved Springsteen for a long time, but then I kind of got over it. I still love Patti Smith. Mm. But those were sort of my, those are the things that sort of set me up from what I was listening to before, which is I had a very soft rock early 70s period where it was like James Taylor, Carol King, John Denver, Olivia Newton-John. And then it was sort of like, no. And then it, it kind of evolved into and Elton John, and then uh, and then it was like ELO was my favorite band for a while, and like Rod Stewart. So I was, uh, but the thing is, I was a kid 
in I was I was born at the very end of '59. So when in 1965, one day I turned on the radio, and from that point in my life, I was hooked on music. So I listened to the glory days of '60s AM radio from the age of five to ten. So what really got imprinted on me were all the '60s. Motown hits and British Invasion hits and stuff like 96 Tears and all that stuff. I loved music so much as a kid that I used to, I used, so it's like back in the 60s, the local radio station would have a top 40 and they'd print like the local survey every week. You could get their list of top 40 songs. You'd get it at the store where you went to buy your 45s. So even though I couldn't buy very many 45s as a little kid, I'd pick up the lists. But I was so into music that living in Peoria, I'd listen to the Peoria station, but then I'd listen to a couple of Chicago stations, some of which didn't always come in so well. And I was into music so much that I thought, oh, I like songs different than, like they would play different songs uh, on different stations. So I would make my own top 40 lists of my favorite songs for each week. I started doing them in crayon when I was like six years old. And I kept them till I was 12. And then I threw them out. And God, I wish I still had them. But a lot of the stuff that I loved back then, I still love. But then some of the stuff that like was so intense and scary, I liked later, like The Who or Aretha Franklin or James Brown. They were like scary when I was seven years old, uh, but they they got imprinted on me and I learned to love them later. Um, so by the time I was in high school, I I still had all this love for 60s pop hits, pop radio, but then I was getting into all these 70s bands. Um, so that's kind of where I was at with punk. When I got into punk, I had been in a situation where like, like ELO, for example, my favorite ELO song would have been the hardest rocking song on each album. It's like, I always liked the fast songs. It'd be like all these ballads and then like one crunchy rocker. And it's like, that was always my favorite. So I was listening to all this stuff in the early seventies where it just, you know, it, it seemed like I wanted a certain kind of stuff that wasn't out there. And then when punk came along, it was out there, but a lot of those sixties hits like Rolling Stones hits satisfied that kind of thing too. So I didn't come into punk with, I mean, I came into punk with a lot of 70s baggage that I then threw off, but I still kept the 60s stuff and I have still I've always like loved that stuff too. Mm-hmm. So where were you kind of getting distribution for the zine from? Like, were you just kind of like putting ads in the back of Trouser Press or were there other zines you were kind of doing that through? Yeah, that's all I did. Trouser Press. Um, I put ads in there and my and my zine looked terrible. I tried to get in as much as much information as I could, and I typed the whole thing out on a typewriter. That's so, so it's awesome. These, the, and there were these dense blocks of text. It was really hard to read. So visually, it was it had no style. It was all about the content. And um, I did it until I went to college, which was the fall of 78. So I did it for like a year and a half. And... Um, the, the, the best thing that we did was my friend and I, who, you know, who helped turn me on to all this music, um, she and I, this is like summer, late summer of 77, we're like, punk has come along 
and it's great, but something else is going to come along that's going to out-punk punk. What will that be? And we decided it would be the ugly bands. <laughs> After the punk bands would be ugly bands. And uh, ugly music would be uglier. So we did this uh, uh, fake uh, article about the new ugly bands <laughs> where we took pictures of ourselves looking really stupid, um, like pretending to be these ugly bands. It was just ridiculous. But um, but that was that was how that was really how we amused ourselves in Peoria, Illinois. But also that was our way of connecting with people in other places because they would have, I would just go to the copy shop and print up like. I can't even remember how many I made, like a hundred, like I want to say 300, but, um, I had a whole st uh, stack of them in my house for a decade afterwards in my uh, parents' house. But when I moved to California, they made me, they made, said, you can't leave anything here. You've got to either take it or throw it away. And I threw a bunch away. So had you, what was the first concert you ever went to? First concert I ever went to, it's kind of. Well, there's two of them. Uh, when I was eight, I got taken to some benefit concert in Peoria that uh, I went to with my babysitter. And um, all I remember is that Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees was the MC, but the Monkees didn't play. <laughs> um, the only band I can remember playing was a band called Underground Sunshine from Wisconsin who had a hit with the Beatles song Birthday, like they did, did a cover. That's all I remember. That was like end of 68. Um, but then I didn't, Peoria didn't have concerts. Um, I remember King Crimson played and I wasn't into that. And then I went to the next concert I could, which turned out to be Jimmy Buffett. And I remember thinking, A, this is boring. B, I don't care about pot smoking jokes. So it was 1974. So um, then I didn't get to another concert for three more years. And then it was Bob Seger. And Bob Seger was great. And, um, you know, I think a lot of his stuff holds up pretty well, at least from the 70s. So, um, so that was good. And then I went to college and started seeing concerts all the time. And, uh, um, but I tried to see the Ramones when I was 18 because they played in Champaign, which is where I ended up going to college and I'd been down there, uh, but I didn't live there yet. It was a hundred miles away. And, um, my, uh, friend and I wanted to go see the Ramones cause we heard the Ramones were playing there and that we heard the drinking ages 18 in Champaign and, uh, we were 18. Um, whereas most places in, uh, back then in Illinois, it was 19 for the drinking age, but university of Illinois is split between two towns, Champaign and Urbana. <clears throat> Urbana on the east side had the 18-year-old drinking age. Champagne had the 19-year-old drinking age, and that's where the Ramones were playing. So we didn't get in. We drove down really early to the show, um, tried to get in, and couldn't. Um, we heard the Ramones sound check, and after sound check, they went across the street to a burger joint. So we went into the burger joint and talked to the Ramones. And, um, we mostly talked to Johnny and we said, look, we really want to get in. You know, we don't want to drink. We just want to hear you. We saw that there's a back door. Can you let us in? And he's like, 
that place is so small. There's just no way we could do it without, you know, you getting caught. So, and it was a tiny place. So, um, we did not stick around and listen to the show. We drove home because it was a long way. So that was my attempt to see a punk rock show when I was still in high school. <laughs> but then, but the, the next thing I saw after that, I saw Nick Lowe and Rock Pile with Elvis Costello. And that was a great show. That was, that was a really great show back when Elvis Costello was really, um, you know, intimidating. So it was, uh, it was, you know, he played fast and punky then, so it was, it was great. Then I went to college and started seeing shows all the time. I love Rock Pile too. Like that, Nick Lowe is such a kind of incredible songwriter. Yeah, yeah. Heart of the City is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's like two minutes. I mean, this is the thing that's interesting about punk is that when I was into punk originally, people that I knew, like when I went to college when I met other people who are into punk, they were into other music too. Mm -hmm. So this idea that comes along later that if you're punk, you're into punk. It's like, well, I don't know. I thought that the early punk had more flexibility about what you could call it than what came along later when it really kind of narrowed. So, you know, everybody who was listening to punk was listening to Elvis Costello and Ian Dury and people like that. So, you know, I kind of advocate for a broader definition of punk which i think it's kind of gotten to at this point but for a while there it just seemed like it was getting narrower and encompassing less like you weren't punk enough if so i was into the sort of broader thing and i you know still like power pop too no absolutely and i kind of like I don't know, for myself, I always look at it like all the stuff you're talking about that was before it, like even Bob Seger, like, you know, that's all kind of the same sort of energy that eventually gets kind of picked up as punk and then eventually gets codified into something very specific for a time. But I totally agree with you that it's come around and I think it's opened up again in a big way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're like bands like like the the Gizmos and, and like the Gulture record stuff or any of that stuff on your radar being from the Midwest? Yeah, one of the interesting things about having a zine and advertising it in Trouser Press was that I, I didn't get, you know, I was more interested in the British bands, mm -hmm. but I wasn't getting promos of the British bands. The only stuff that I was getting mailed was this weird, um, not very punk sounding uh, <laughs> indie label stuff. It's sort of like the American bands that were around then were more arty and uh, uh, and strange rather than the the fast rocking stuff that I really wanted. Mm -hmm. So I remember uh, getting uh, the gizmos, some gizmos stuff, um, and I thought it was pretty good. Um, I especially liked their. They did an album. That was a split with another band called Dow Jones and the Industrials. Absolutely, and it, and it has the it has a couple great songs on it, like uh, uh, "The Midwest Can Be All Right" and "Progressive Rock." Um, like progressive rock, progressive rock really sucks, don't it? Don't it really suck? It's like yeah, all right. <laughs> and um, but I remember getting a so I had like a resident single that I thought was interesting, but again, creepy. Para Ubu, which was 
you know, really out there. Uh, it's like, I, once I got used to David Thomas's voice, it was fine. But at first I was just like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> um, but there were things that if I, that uh, records that I didn't think were very good that actually became very collectible later because they were from that early period when there wasn't much and it was historically really interesting. Um, but it didn't really fit the bill for what I wanted to listen to. So I was gravitating more towards the the British, more towards the Brits. I mean, I like stuff like the Dead Boys too, but they actually sounded like a punk band. Yeah, absolutely. What, 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 like, what about a band like the Pagans then? Never heard them till the 90s. Okay, yeah. I guess it's like, it's it's so, you know, it's so hit and miss even until like the 90s where you know, the stuff starts getting reissued of, of finding this stuff. Like there's so few copies of a lot of these things. The thing is, I, I mean, if it didn't come out by the middle of 78, at that point, I wasn't like getting records mailed to me anymore. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I'm sure that if I'd kept going longer, I probably would have encountered uh, stuff like that. But, uh, I thought I might keep the zine going after I got to college, but I didn't have time. So talking about power pop records earlier, was it like the bands like the nerves or what was the, what was your kind of gateway to that sort of sound? You know, I, I was actually, I didn't hear the nerves back then. I heard about them. So the thing is you could, even the stores that had punk records, you would look at these things and ha like have no idea what's good. Like you, you couldn't, you, you like, you couldn't ask anybody what it sounded like. So you, you just had to go, go based on, what people were writing about it. And I just didn't have the kind of money to go out and experiment that much. So I didn't actually hear, I heard about the nerves, but I didn't actually hear the nerves till a few years later. But one of the people who I was in contact with, and I think this is a really forgotten kind of part of 70s punk in America, was uh, the label Bomp Records, B-O-M-P, from L.A., Greg Shaw, it was his label, and he was really a 60s kind of revivalist. So he was always like pushing more of them. But he also, but there were so few outlets back then, he put out a Devo single. He put out Iggy when Iggy had no record contract. So, um, I mean, it was pretty hit and miss, but, uh, but Bump put out a lot of stuff and were visible as a label. And I used to actually write letters to bomb and they would write greg shaw would write me back so um that's when the scene was really small it was a really small scene initially a punk in this country so uh um but those are the kinds of things that i was paying attention to and bomb had a magazine too but they were really focused on a lot of 60s stuff yeah absolutely and they put out like you know it's it's they put out like uh the b-girls from here they put out the mumps they put out so many different Artists right. that are like a lot more obscure kind of stuff too. The zeros too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess going on, like when did you start playing music? Um, I didn't start playing music till 1980 when I was 20. That's when I decided to try to pick it up and be a guitar, uh, play guitar and be a musician. I went to school at University of Illinois, knowing that they had a college radio station. And that's what I wanted to do, is be a DJ. So I I went there and, you know, worked my way up, got my way on the station. And uh, and that was really great. That was really fun. 
especially because their station, a lot of college radio stations are very small, low power. We had 3,000 watts. We could be heard for 40 miles. So it was great to actually be on a station and to be able to play stuff and, and have people hear it and, and listen to it. And I did a punk show on that station. I did like a sort of British indie show, too, a little later after punk kind of faded out. But um, I was um, I was more into the DJ thing, but eventually decided I wanted to do it myself. So, uh, where were were there any local bands that kind of like I'm I'm kind of a miss for stuff even from Chicago around the first first wave, like it's kind of the suburbs kind of era that I know more about. Were there any local bands happening at that time for you? When I got to Champaign, the the local bands that were good. Uh, there was a band called Screams, who, who were kind of a glammy rock band, uh, not a punk band at all. But they were like into T-Rex and stuff. They were okay. They were good live. They made a record for a major label. It wasn't very good, though. Um, and then uh, uh, they broke up. And then a couple of years later, there's a uh, our local heroes were a band called the Vertebrats. And the Vertebrats were best known for being on a compilation called Battle of the Garages that Bomp Records put out. And they were on it because I sent them the tape. Because <laughs> I'm like, here, here's a band from my local town. I bet you'd like them. And of course they did. Um, the song they did was called Left in the Dark. And it's been covered now by a lot of people. Um, Courtney Love did a version of it. Never released it, but it's on YouTube. Uh, Uncle Tupelo did a version of it. It was a B-side. Um, who else has covered it? It's been covered. There's like a bunch of covers of it. Screaming Tribesmen from Australia. Wow. Version of yeah, absolutely. It's an underground classic. It's a great fucking song. And um, they they were they were punk influenced, but they weren't a punk band. They had a really simple drummer who was actually a guitar player who couldn't play drums that great. And that's one of the reasons they were so good. He kept it really basic. So um, they did covers, but they also ended up writing, you know, a few dozen songs. They were just a great band. And I actually helped get a, a vinyl reissue of theirs come out about 10 years ago. Um, they, there'd been a couple of, uh, CD compilations too, uh, that came out, but I didn't have anything to do with, but they're, they're a great, like a great lost band. And I think a lot of cities had bands like that. Um, they were very well loved. They were really popular and it broke up though in 83 before the indie thing came along so when rem and the replacements came along we were just like why did they stop now here's a now here's it's time for these kinds of bands to to get heard but they broke up too soon um but they were really the local thing and they kind of broke through the cover band uh the thing that was mostly live music, there was cover bands. They were playing originals. So after that, it kind of opened the floodgates. And seeing them uh, inspired a lot of other people to form bands, including me. So that's when I decided I would um, uh, try to form my own band. And um, one of the guys from the Vertebrates helped me pick out a guitar, which I ended up buying from the guitarist in Screens. So um, I had a Fender Mustang, cute little lightweight 
garage rock guitar. Um, so that's, that's where things started. So I, I, I started playing thinking I want to form a band. So I was, was pretty goal-oriented with my deciding to play music. Yeah, so where did you kind of go for finding the rest of the members of the band then? Um, just around town. Uh, University of Illinois had a huge student population. It's like 40,000 students. So um, I, I just started asking around and, uh, you know, ended up with a band. And ended up with one, it's sort of the same thing happened in Pansy Division. I found a bass player, like one guy who was really solid and then kind of filled in the rest. Mm-hmm. And so where did you kind of go from there with this band? Like, was there, you know, obviously a local scene kind of taking off at that point? Did you kind of fell into, or were you playing with bands from Chicago or? No, we, we had, it wasn't an out of town thing at first. Uh, we wanted to just be able to play in our town and that's what we did. Uh, we made a single that we put out ourselves and, um, and then we got on another bump records compilation. We were in battle of garages volume two and um, that led to a tour where we played uh, across the eastern half of the country with a bunch of the other bands that were on it. And um, that got us some visibility. And then we decided to make a record and try to find a label to put it out. And we sent it to Homestead. And they're like, oh, yeah, we've heard of you. We heard your song. So, yeah, we're interested. So we ended up getting Homestead. And for people who don't know Homestead Records that was really one of the first U uh, S independent labels that would put out a whole bunch of stuff like that weren't a regional label. So you could, I mean, when we were on Homestead, we were like the American bands were on, there were people like big black and, and swans uh, who we didn't sound like at all, <laughs> but then there was also Nick cave was on there. So, you know, my label made, uh, were much better known uh, eventually than we were, but um, but it was great to be on that label. It really did help us get some visibility. Uh, we made two albums for Homestead and tried to play as much as uh, in the Midwest as we could, going away on weekends to play. Like we are four hours from Cincinnati, we are three hours from Chicago, we are about three hours, four hours from St. Louis. So that's, those are basically the places that we'd go to play uh, at first. And then after we had an album out, we tried to do tours with the limited amount of, limited amount of time that we had in, uh, away from our jobs. And, uh, you know, we tried pretty hard, but we just never really had that much visibility. Our second record got reviewed in Spin Magazine, which was probably the, the only real national press that we ever had. Um, and then, uh, after about five years, we just thought it, it had peaked. It wasn't going to go anywhere else. We recorded a third album, but Homestead wasn't interested. So, uh, somebody put it out locally and, uh, and that was it. And then I left for California. Uh, you know, that I'm going to get to all the stuff in a second, but I guess going back to that very first tour, which of the bands from that comp were kind of on that tour was like Yard Trauma on or, or The Odds or? No, it was, we played with the Prime Movers from oh, yeah. Boston and, um, and we were pretty good pals with them. 
Um, it's a great comp. There's so many good bands on that. Like True West's on there, and yeah, and the scene. And we never played with True West. I would have loved that, but they were on the West Coast, and we weren't. <laughs> yeah. um, that was uh, yeah. We didn't really get to. Uh, uh, Outnumber did do a West Coast tour after our second album, but once we got west of Kansas City, no one knew who we were. So it was really more of an East Coast thing. I'm trying to think of who we played with from that. So I'm looking, oh, the Prime Movers and the Mad Violets. Mad Violets were another great band. We did a tour mostly with them. And so what kind of uh, shows were you playing on that tour? Like just like uh, with any random local bands or was it all just kind of like the package only? It was a package. And um, we were, uh, we played like, I don't know, about a week and a half. And, um, and we had a great time. And um, uh, the other bands made fun of us because nobody in our band was much of a drinker. Uh, so we were the milk and cookies band. <laughs> we were, uh, uh, we weren't out trying to get fucked up. So we were, uh, we're really into our music. I mean, part of, part of the thing that the outnumbered, the guys in the outnumbered had in common and is true in pansy division is that we're really fans of music and you hear enough tales about bands just being, you know, strung out, fucked up. And you think, God, why are these people like, I don't want to live a rock and roll lifestyle. That just seems cliched and horrible. Hmm. So we were really into the music and not the lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And so what were like kind of the hotter scenes at that time um, for the kind of music you're playing? Cause like, yeah, as you're saying, it's like pre Nirvana where indie and alternative music kind of gets like on a national stage. It's kind of like you're building that scene basically. <laughs> Um, Boston was really, I think the, the best place and, um, trying to think of where else we played. I don't, I, I only can remember like specifically two places that we played. <laughs> um, but I know we played like a, a bunch of shows, but I mean, Boston was really the best. I mean, New York was good, but Boston seemed to really be where it was happening but, you know, other parts of the Midwest, too. I remember we had a lot of people in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cincinnati, not a great town, but always had good shows there in both of my bands, as opposed to, like, you know, other places in the Midwest, other college towns. Yeah, like Shake It Records, I guess, was is that the local record store and label, right? I don't remember them. They put out, I think, Candy Apple. I'm trying to remember some of the other bands they put out on that label. But, they, like, you know, once again, some very collectible, nerdy records at this point. But uh, mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. records. With with the with the outnumbered, later we ended up opening for bigger bands. Um, we opened for a couple of shows for Soul Asylum. They were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, we loved the replacements and got to open for them twice. Um once was a show I promoted in Champaign, and I thought, God, I hope they don't destroy the place. And they, <laughs> and they didn't. Oh, good. And then we actually played with them in Cincinnati, where they did destroy the place. Uh, we went we went backstage to say hello, because we had played with them a few months earlier. They weren't in their dressing room, but the food from their deli tray was all over the walls and ceiling. So we knew that they had been there. <laughs> Um, and like you mentioned promoting shows, what other shows did you put on? We were 
Champaign, Illinois is 135 miles from Chicago. So we tried to get bands. I, what I did for about three years was I got tired of having to drive to Chicago to see shows. So I tried to start booking them uh, in Champaign. And um, best show I ever booked was the Feelies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and people would say, oh, I don't want to pay $5 to go out and see this band. I don't want to pay $6. So I'm like, all right. I tried a different tactic. I said, here's the feelies who not that many people knew, but some did. Uh, and they had just put out the good earth. I said, all right, it's going to be $2 to see the feelies. <laughs> so we had, you know, 300 people and that was fantastic. Um, but we had Jonathan Richmond and, um, the replacements, uh, Dump Truck, whose first album I love. Yeah. Guadalcanal Diary, uh, Salem 66, who are another Homestead band from Boston. Uh, Volcano Sons, who are, I think, one of the most underrated bands from that period. Incredible, incredible band. Uh, the Outnumbered, you know, we were together five years. And after our first album came out in 85, we heard Husker Du's New Day Rising. And we heard the Volcano Sons, The Bright Orange Years, which was their first album on Homestead. And um, and we just kind of looked at each other and said, we'll never be this good. You know, we, we, this is what we want to do. We don't have that much kick-assness. We were more songwriting or oriented um, and more jangly. So what The Outnumbered were like was kind of like a jangly punk band. So we didn't we didn't sound like punk. We weren't a wimpy indie band, although I guess some people might think so. But we were trying to go for something in between. We wanted something with some drive, some speed, but not stereotypical punk. And you know, we we wanted we wanted it to rock. So that it's kind of the same position that Pansy Division ended up being in later, which was that you know, we were too wimpy for like the maximum rock and roll crowd, but we were, um, you know, way too punk for for some sort of indie listeners. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of where I want to be. It's somewhere between indie and punk. I guess, like, yeah, going back to the outnumber, I think they're, I think those records are amazing, and I think it's like that kind of true American power pop sound. Like, it's just like. You know, like you're saying, like it's 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 driving great songs that just kind of mm -hmm. you know, and I think I think those records hold up like fantastic albums. Thank you. Well, the outnumbered moment in the sun might be coming. Our last hurrah. So um, I forget the title of it, but uh, it's been postponed because of the pandemic. But uh, captured tracks is is putting out. You know, basically the, the C86 stuff from England, like the C86 cassette that really codified the British indie scene of a certain period, there's no American equivalent of that, of American bands. So Captured Tracks is putting one out, and we're on it. So that will probably be the last bit of exposure that... Uh, the outnumbered gets. That's awesome. Dave Martin, who works at Captured Tracks, is a, a very good friend of this show. So, um, great, yeah, big, big fan. I, lo I, I love the label, so I'm really glad to be part of the 
uh, compilation. So I hope it comes out. Yeah, it's like almost like a kill by death of that era type thing needs to be done where like mm-hmm. it's, it's such a like and I, and I love that scene because it's just like, you know, it's kind of undefinable, but it's like that proto alternative rock type thing. But like, you know, way, way better songwriting than a lot of that stuff. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be curious to hear it because a bunch of the the bands that are on it, I've not heard of. So it's pretty obscure stuff. Uh, you know, the British indie scene by the mid eighties got very good press coverage in England and there wasn't an equivalent here for a while. It finally did catch up, but, um, it really took until right until the mid eighties when you sort of had this, uh, uh, concentration of, of magazines like matter and New York rocker and, uh, 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 jet lag from St. Louis, where suddenly there were a uh, nonstop banner from Chicago that covered uh, a lot of this music. Uh, and then you could hear about it much more easily. Yeah, it's, I think, uh, you know, once again, it's like you're saying the zines, kind of like the underground press circuit that built, um, you know, the proto pitchfork, I guess, um, is, is really, I guess, what spread the word of this stuff. Yeah. That, that was the way that I found out about things was, was reading about them. Um, I mean, I tried to work in record stores when I could because that was another way to have access to records. Access to records drove a lot of decisions in my life. <laughs> I wanted to be in the radio station so I could go into the record library and listen to things and uh, wanted to work in a store so I could have access to records. And I wanted to write record reviews so that I could have access to records. I was a record freak. I get that. I definitely get that illness. I'm surrounded by records right now. Do you, do you hold on to all your records? No, I've actually gotten rid of a lot. When I moved to California in 88, I got rid of a bunch of records that I wished I hadn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, then I started acquiring CDs instead. So I, I still like CDs. Um, a lot of them in the 80s didn't sound that good. I think in later years, they did. But I really didn't start buying CDs until LPs completely disappeared. So, like, the Nirvana records came out on vinyl. I have all of them on vinyl. But for, you know, smaller major label bands, uh, you couldn't buy records. So so that's basically what I bought until I couldn't. Were you into Bleach when it came out? Was it Nirvana? Yeah. Could you tell they were going to be something, uh, you know, big when you heard them? Like, it, it seems like such a divisive band uh, when I have people on the show. No, I I didn't think they were going to be big. I mean, I liked About a Boy. That was yeah. the song that I really liked. Or, or About a Girl. So um, I I thought, ooh, I'd like a whole album of that. <laughs> um, but, oh, wait a minute. I, I, got, I can't rewrite history here. I did not hear Bleach until after uh, Nevermind came out. Um, but from when I moved to San Francisco, I got to San Francisco in 89 for the first two years I lived in San Francisco. I worked for rough trade distribution. I was a sales rep. So we were, you know, we had all the rough trade releases. We were releasing a whole bunch of, uh, American releases on rough trade and we had all these imports we were distributing. So we had, I, again, access to all this music and um 
I forget your question. What was your question? No, just about Nirvana. Like when, like do you Nirvana, right? It? So I remember reading all this hype about the Seattle bands, and from what I'd heard of them, I just thought this is bullshit. <laughs> um, but I actually hadn't heard Nirvana, but like Tad and, and stuff like that. I'm like, really? This is what this is what the British papers think is good. I I just ignored it. So until Nirvana, until Nevermind hit, I just was thinking that the whole thing was was British hype, uh, even if it came from Seattle. So because I because the other thing about Rift Trade was they had the NME every week. So you'd read their breathless uh, uh, exaggerations about everybody. So I guess going back to that time reading the NME were like bands like Mega City 4 and Leatherface kind of on your radar, too. Um. I did hear them. I never got into them. Mm-hmm. What were kind of the bands locally happening in San Francisco when you moved out there that were, you know, your favorite? The big one was Sister Double Happiness with Gary Floyd, who had been in the Dicks. Um, they were the big local heroes. And we thought, you know, I'd go to see them and they'd have 600 people. So my goal with Pansy Division at the beginning was I was thinking, we are not going to be a popular band but we might be popular in San Francisco. I thought what we're doing is just what we wanted to sing about was just so beyond what most people wanted to hear. My guess was we're going to be big in like New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco, maybe elsewhere, but it's like, we're going to either be huge in a city or we're going to be nothing. And it turned out much differently than that. So, uh, we never got 600 people in San Francisco, but, um, but, Sister Double Happiness were like punk and hard rock too, uh, but also there was an acoustic element. They were a great band. They'd been on SST, and then uh, by the time I was living in San Francisco, they were on Warner Brothers, but their Warner Brothers record uh, didn't sell. So their career kind of went downhill after that. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of bands got caught in that kind of major label trap for at, at various times in kind of history of this music. For sure. Um, so going back to like uh, Pansy Division, how did that begin to come together? Was that the first project you did a- a going out there? Well, what happened was one of the reasons I decided to leave Illinois was I was 27, 28, and I was still living in a college town because after I got out of college is when I did the Outnumbered. So I thought being in the middle of the country was good for a, a good central place for a band. Champaign was a cheap town to live in. And uh, I didn't leave until my band broke up. So when my band broke up, I thought I don't really have a reason to stay. But I also didn't want to form another band. I thought, well, I wanted to have a band. I did it. It was pretty successful. We weren't huge by any means, but we had some fans all over the country. And we put out three albums and we got to do tours. We played more than 200 shows. So I thought, good, congratulations. You did it. That's as far as it's going to go. So I didn't think I was going to have a band again. I sold all my instruments and my amp. So I moved to, because I didn't want to bring all that stuff with me. So I went to uh, California thinking I'm not going to be a musician again. But then after I'd been there a year and a half, I'd had the idea of doing a gay band, even when I was living in Illinois, but I thought, that's impossible. There's, There's just, gay people are not into the music I'm into. And, uh... I just can't see finding other gay people to play in a band. Because that's what I thought was, I'm not going to have another band unless 
I can have a gay band. Because one of the things about The Outnumbered was I was the only gay guy in the band. Everybody in the band fully accepted that. Uh, but I felt like, as the main singer and songwriter, I was writing for my band, not for just for me. So I didn't want to be singing about gay stuff, even if I had wanted to, which I think at that time I didn't. But in that band, I, I didn't really want to do that. I thought, well, I don't want this to be my backing band. I want this to be, you know, a democratic uh, uh, setup. So when I had the idea around the time the outnumber broke up, to I thought, well, I'll have a gay band. <laughs> yeah, right. That'll never happen. So after I'd been in San Francisco about a year and a half, I thought, huh, maybe maybe it could happen. And part of what motivated me was the fact that I knew that there were a lot of gay musicians. Um, the rumors around a lot of people had circulated, but nobody would come out. There were rumors, but never a confirmation. And I was really looking hard, both in England. It's like the, the type of people who came out were people like... Um, like Jimmy Somerville. So he did really pro-gay, pro, you know, openly gay dance music, disco stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, good. Why doesn't somebody who's in rock and roll do this stuff, the music that I want to listen to? Um, and nobody was doing it. And then one day, uh, around the end of 90, I thought, hey, nobody wants to do this. Everybody is afraid all these people we know are gay aren't coming out. I'm going to form a gay band, and I'm, I have nothing to lose. So I'm just going to be as, as uncensored and blatant and unique as I can be. So that was the idea. And I mean, I'm, the, the music compared to The Outnumbered was actually more stripped down, because at first it was just guitar, bass, and drums. The Outnumbered had two guitar players. So this was simpler. And I also didn't want a second guitar player, at least at first, because I wanted people to hear the words. So, I mean, I could have cranked it up louder, but, you know, to make a louder band would have meant the words can't get heard. So I was trying to push the guitar as hard as I can without steamrolling the words, because I thought, even if we're a good band musically... The words are, are really what's going to make us unique. So then I had this really fun period of just like writing about all the stuff that I'd never heard written about in a song before. And um, that's kind of what our, ended up being our first album. But it was hard to find a band, even in San Francisco at first. I, had, I was new there and I didn't know very many people. But um, I knew people at Rough Trade. Um, in fact, one of the people I worked with at Rough Trade was Donna Dresch from Team Dresch, mm -hmm. but she she hadn't formed uh, that band yet. But that's where I met her. Uh, she was living in San Francisco then. So, um, so I thought I've got the field wide open to myself if I decide to be an open have an openly gay rock band because no one else will be openly gay. So I'll have the field all to myself. <laughs> What about bands like, um, uh, I guess, Tribe 8 and stuff like that? Was was that happening or was that on your radar at that time? Tribe 8 came along at the exact same time. My third show 
I played with Tribe 8, and it was their second show. Oh, that's the awesome. Difference, the difference was they had a whole band, and I didn't. When I started doing Pansy Division, I thought, the time is right to do this. I'm looking for a band, but I'm going to start by calling it Pansy Division, even though it was just me. It was me and an electric guitar. On my, me and my guitar on stage. That was it. And um, I was looking for musicians. It took me about four months to find a bass. No, actually not that long to find a bass player, which is Chris Freeman, who I'm still in the band with. And then the drummer turned out to be very problematic. We had... I think in the first five years of our band, a dozen drummers. Oh, wow. Um, some were temps borrowed from other bands. Um, others are people who didn't work out. Uh, there were a couple people who came in from other parts of the country who came to do a tour or something but didn't stay. Until we found... Um, uh, we had a drummer. So we, we didn't really have a permanent drummer till 95, who is really going to stay. So um, uh, it took a long time to get the, the lineup set. And by the time the lineup was really set, things had kind of peaked already, but that's because of unexpected, the unexpected uh, experience of green day asking us on tour, but we're getting ahead. Maybe. I don't know. We've already been talking for an hour. So I know. I was going to say, move this. no, I was going to say, John, this has been incredible. And would you come back at some point in the future and do a part two? Uh, sure. Well, uh, before I let you go though, I, I do want to like definitely nerd. I mean, I'm not saying I have to stop. I just know how long you want to go for. Oh, I believe me. I could talk forever. That's what I, I love. As I said about, you know, yourself and Chris as well. Like both of you had, you know, these completely, you know, successful by their own terms, as you laid out other bands and other lives before you did this other pivotal band in music with Pansy Division. Like I, I like, you know, I could have a whole second interview with you right now just about Pansy Division stuff. Well, the, the thing about, oh, I'll just say this, both Chris and I had been in bands that had put out records uh, in the eighties uh, and um, had had some success and, by the time that we met uh, in the early '90s, we had we had both of us had just turned thirty, and um, we already had a lot of experience. About he hadn't toured, but I had, so he had like certain uh, knowledgeability about studios, and I had certain uh, knowledgeability about college radio and touring, and um, so we had like different uh experiences but they both served us really well we weren't you know if if, if bigger fame had come along i think we could have handled it because we weren't that young so if we had been you know 22 instead of 32 i think it would have been uh it might have been a different story but we we already had kind of gone through the process once and knew what we what we didn't want, how, how we didn't want to do it and how we did want to do it. Going back to the first version of undressed, um, the tape, how long was that after moving to San Francisco that you recorded that tape? Um, I had been in San Francisco two years. So I went back in 91, uh, in June, I went back to Illinois to record 
what I thought was going to be demos for uh, Undress because I just hadn't met people yet in San Francisco and I had to go back there for a wedding. And a good friend of mine, uh, another musician from back there, had opened a studio and he said, if you come back, I'll record you for really cheap. And so I went back and used a drummer, tried to use a drummer I knew, couldn't find him, um, got a different drummer that my friend knew. Actually, I knew him too, but not very well. And he turned out to be great. He turned out to be so good that about three quarters of what we recorded turned out to be the actual album. So I was thrilled that it came out so well. Then I had to go back to champagne and try to find the band but now i had a demo tape so i um i think from that original demo tape about three quarters of those versions ended up on the final version but a couple of them got re-recorded once chris joined the band so chris wasn't even on most of the first album he was on i think four four songs out of 13 so that was um very good timing and my friend in illinois was the first person really outside of san francisco who had heard the band and you know he's a straight guy cool guy and he's listening to it going john this could be huge and i didn't think so i thought again i'm thinking we're going to be big in san francisco and not many other places but he's like no this could be big this this is really important so that was very interesting to hear that. Mm -hmm. It really did get me thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I guess like going back to San Francisco, were you like familiar with like the stuff that was happening around the Gilman and Lookout records like Crimp Shrine and, and the Lookouts and those kind of bands? I was kind of at an arm's length because Rough Trade Distribution sold Lookout records. Okay. And I was getting requests from stores for these bands that were across the bridge that I, until people started asking for them, I hadn't heard of, mainly Operation Ivy and Green Day. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, those had caught on. And I saw Operation Ivy. So many people would have killed to have seen them. I saw them and I didn't think they were very good. <laughs> so uh, I kind I saw them open for Fugazi the week I moved to San Francisco. And um, uh, and I thought they were extremely goofy. Like, what is this goofy ska stuff? I couldn't really hear the words to know that they were really pretty serious. But they just looked like some t Tim Armstrong really looked like a goofball back then. It's really hard to uh, imagine the same, you know, bearded, tattooed guy. Uh, I saw him when he was like a skinny, untattooed. I don't know how old he was, teenager? Yeah, teenager. But, uh, but it was, um, uh, I, I wished I'd paid more attention. But it was my first week in San Francisco. I didn't know that they were going to be important. But I wasn't blown away. But I tried to see Green Day, and um, they kept scheduling shows at a club near my house and kept canceling. So when I finally met them, I said, why did you keep canceling your shows? It's why I haven't seen you till till we played with them. And they said, oh, yeah, we'd smoke so much pot. And we were like, yeah, we don't want to cross the bridge. <laughs> we don't want to go into San Francisco. We're just going to stay home. 
So they were really casual about things back then. They loved playing at Gilman. I don't know. They didn't like playing in San Francisco that much or didn't care. Well, yeah, so, I was gonna, sorry, go on. So uh, apart from them, I don't, I was not really that aware of the lookout scene for a while, but then I started to realize, um, like start hearing about other bands and realizing, Oh yeah, this is a real grassroots kind of thing. And then eventually we played at Gilman street. So that made, then it all started to make more sense. Once I saw Gilman, I was like, Oh, Oh wow. It's what every city should have like a clubhouse where bands could local bands who don't have big aspirations can, can come and play and just, you know, have that experience. So I guess going back to that look at scene, like how did you meet uh, Larry Livermore and kind of get um, that tape to him? Uh, what brought you to that label? Cause you're like, you know, you're at rough trade. Did you ever, were there other labels you kind of thought about? By the time I was doing pansy division, rough trade had gone bankrupt. Um, I did send a tape to Homestead. I thought I knew that Homestead at that point, Gerard was not, uh, in charge of them. Uh, but the guy who was running Homestead, uh, did not like our record. And for that, I'm eternally grateful because, because the, the owners of Homestead were pretty shady. Uh, I actually worked for them later as a sales rep after rough trade went bankrupt and I did not like uh, uh, what they were doing. So I got out of there eventually. Um, but, uh, I don't know if this is a, the appropriate place to say this, but I said, I would say this, uh, 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 when we were talking earlier, but, um, Gerard Kosloy was the person who signed us to, uh, Homestead. Mm-hmm. And when we came out as Pansy Division later, uh, he was quoted in Rolling Stone as saying, you're one of the worst bands in America. So I, so he really hated Pansy Division. And I haven't talked to him since. So uh, I have no idea what, but I mean, quoted in Rolling Stone. So, you know, that was pretty shitty. Absolutely. Well, like, cause he, he would have been a fan of the outnumbered, I imagine, right? I think so. Yeah, he liked us. He signed us. Put Did out two records. Two of our records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's terrible. I'm really sorry to hear that because that is like, you know, like as you're saying, like this is a a band with Pansy Division that, you know, the impact that you had was was beyond like many bands. You know, like the impact you had. Like I just think of locally how many people out here just lives were impacted by Pansy Division. You know, like not just my brother and myself, but like our whole group of friends, you know, and just like, you know, it's a, it's one of those bands that kind of like opened a lot of people's eyes to, to, you know, LGBTQ two spirited kind of worlds and, and just sort of like this, this, you know, it was like this hand reaching out kind of thing. When we first started in San Francisco, um, people came up to me and sometimes wrote to me, not, not gay people, um, saying, I can't believe it has taken this long for a band like you to come along. I thought I would have heard something like this years ago. Thank you for, you know, I love your band. I love what you're doing. I just can't believe it's taken so long. I had the idea. I sort of had the concept that there'd be a band like you years ago. And then other people said things like, thank you for, 
for inserting yourself into the punk scene in a way that, you know, basically really gave the finger to the homophobic elements of the scene. Uh, to real, I mean, like when, when we played with Green Day, we used to get, after the Green Day tours, we got so much mail from kids. We didn't think we were going to be playing for kids. We thought, we're in our 30s. We're playing, going to play in gay bars for gay people, you know, older people. We were not expecting teenagers to hear, be hearing us. But a lot of teenagers really got, got into us. And we'd hear from straight kids who went to the Green Day show and they said, I'd never met... I'd never seen a gay person before. I, I, I knew that they existed, but there you were. And I'd never seen anybody in the punk scene. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great thing for green day to do. And, uh, it really did. It really did change things. And I, um, I, I just, I'm kind of amazed that, uh, that we had that opportunity and that our band is still going after almost 30 years. I mean, it's just not what we were thinking. We were thinking this band is going to go and do its thing and, and then it'll probably be over. What we thought was going to happen was, well, we're not the most photogenic bunch. Um, we are not like, you know, we're cute, but we're not like young and sexy rock stars. So we thought somebody is going to come along who's going to basically take what we did and get big with it. And we're still waiting. It's, you know, going back to those records, I think my brother and I got into guys before that Green Day show happened in Toronto because it was just how arresting and how punk those seven inches looked. Like, you know, mm -hmm. buying those records, it was just like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> when where did you so you said that we met so where did you come see pansy division where you met us well we met you at uh cfmy in toronto on bloor street which was a radio oh, station yeah um now we were okay so that was 98 that was after the green day tour that we actually got to meet you but that was uh okay so but so we my brother i, I didn't even actually go to the green day show when it came through toronto my brother went but we went down and met you at CFMY and probably punished you for a good hour that you were there. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, it was like, it was so awesome, you know, and so I guess that's what resonated about punk so much with us was like, here we are meeting these people that had put out these like totally awesome punk seven inches that we had bought just shortly there before, like down the road at a record store called Full Blast Records, which had awesome stuff. Like they really stocked all sorts of cool records that got me into all sorts of awesome sounds. Um, you, were you living in Toronto itself? Yes. Yeah. We lived to kind of like, you know, like a very short distance from that, relatively speaking, it felt like miles at the time, but like we lived like, I guess like a 10 minute subway ride, I guess away. What neighborhood in, in Riverdale. Okay. Which is just uh, off the Danforth. I don't know because you guys came here so many times. Actually, that's that. Is that like the subway going north? No, that's going uh, east, and it's kind of like okay. in Greek Town towards I guess. Scarborough. Yeah, towards Scarborough, exactly. Okay, exactly. it's like um, you know there was a, a short-lived TV TV series here called Riverdale, and it's actually Degrassi, the neighborhood from the Degrassi TV series, is just uh, south of Riverdale too. Okay. 
you know, I loved coming to Toronto in the 90s when we toured, when we were touring all the time. Toronto was one of my favorite stops. And we would always try to make it so we played in Toronto and then like we'd have one day off a week. Mm-hmm. So we'd try to play Toronto and then have our day off. So we'd usually try to play Toronto on like a Saturday or like a Tuesday so we could have extra time in Toronto because we had friends who lived in Parkdale back when Parkdale was cheap. And um, and we love Parkdale because in, in San Francisco, I've lived in the Mission for 30 years, which is now gentrified, but, you know, used to be really cheap and where all the musicians lived. So I'd go to Parkdale and I really feel at home. Um, so Toronto, Toronto and Vancouver were two of our favorite places to play, um, interestingly enough. So I, uh, you know, it's a big city. I don't know all of it, but, you know, I've come back to visit and gotten to know it fairly well. I love walking around uh, Toronto. It's like a cleaner version of Chicago. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like uh, New York with training wheels or kind of like Chicago junior <laughs> type thing. Yeah, because I like Chicago. I you know, grew up in Illinois, not in Chicago, but used to go there a lot. So um, that's funny. I have no memory of, of being at CFNY, except that I remember when Absurd Pop Song Romance came out, which is our favorite album that we made. And uh, that was 98. And CFNY was actually playing a song from it, and they had not been like solicited, uh, and they had you know just picked up and played one of the songs from it, and we were just thrilled. It's like this is the record that might break through, and it didn't. But we got to go there and do an interview, and that was really great. And you know, going up to Canada, and it really we loved going to Canada in the '90s because of the Wedge, because we'd get the the Wedge on much music would play our videos yep. and we could get, you know, people hearing about us in a way that they wouldn't have in the States. So we enjoyed coming to Canada for a while. Then, you know, things, things change, but, uh, but it was, it was great traveling in Canada in the nineties. Well, I hosted the wedge in its very last incarnation and still played. Oh, Wow. Yeah, I rode that thing into the ground. Just killed it. <laughs> just killed it. It's dead now, unfortunately. But like the whole much yeah. music, they actually dropped music from the name. It's just called Much, and it's a comedy station now. Well, it's like MTV. There's no music on MTV anymore. Funny yeah. how that evolved. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, as I say, I've kept you forever, and I could talk to you forever. But there are a couple other questions I'd love to get to if, that, if you're okay with that. Yeah, I'm fine. I I am. I expected. You talked to Chris for two hours, so I kind of figured this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I try and not ramble, uh, but I, I tend to get caught in these tangents. But I'm, I'm trying to be a little more merciful now uh, with people's time. Um, but I, well, I can also go on. So, you know, if it makes you think of questions, that's cool. No, this has been incredible. Like, this is absolutely fantastic. Because as I say, it's like these, you know, really different scenes that I'm, I'm fascinated by. But so how... How did, uh, you know, your tape get to Larry Livermore? Was it kind of like a local buzz that was happening and he hit you up? Or or how did that kind of relationship come about? I think, I don't recall. I had not met Larry Livermore, but I knew about Lookout. So when we were um, trying to get a label, uh, he was, I basically limited it to three labels that I thought were, 
most likely to sign us, and Lookout was one of them. So I sent them a tape, and he came to see us play. And um, and I remember I'd also sent a tape to Alternative Tentacles, and Jello came to see us play on a night where we did not have a good show. So, um, but they were both interested in putting out the record, and I was finding it hard to decide between the two. And we ended up going with Lookout because they could they could put out our record faster. We had a, a Christmas single. We wanted our first single out before Christmas because it had Homo Christmas on it as the B-side. So we thought, let's try to get that out this year. And Alternative Tentacles couldn't do it. And Lookout could. So we were like, we don't know how to decide. That helped make our decision. So the first record came out in November of 92, the first single, and then the album came out the next March. Um, so I guess going back to um, that, that first kind of, uh, you know, or actually I wanted to find out about the Raging Woody EP. Did that, that, did that tape ever get a proper release with a cover? Because um, oh, no, I've never no. seen a cover of it. That was really my first demo. So when I had, I had two demos. The Raging Woody was just... Um, uh, me um, playing my guitar into and singing into a four track that my roommate had, uh, which is, I also didn't have a guitar. He had a guitar and a four track that helped get things off the ground really fast. So I did those four songs, just me and the guitar. And that's what I used to try to get gigs uh, in San Francisco. when I was, when it was just me. And then after, I had gone to Illinois to do the demo with my musician friends back there. That's what I was using to try to get band members. Like, here's the way it's supposed to, here's the way it's supposed to sound. Uh, so, so there were, uh, but all four songs that were on that original demo uh, got remade for the, with a full band and uh, eventually ended up on undressed when it came out in the, after the band recorded it. Um, and I guess did the, uh, kill rock stars compilation thing come about because of your connection to team dretch, I guess. I don't remember how that came about. Actually. Um, I might've sent them a tape too. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't recall how that connection happened. Um, and I guess the other one I want to find out, I'm sorry, these questions are super nerdy. I know. Sure. <laughs> um, Rugger Bugger Discs, uh, who put out, um, the compilation Gay Pride, uh, seven inch that's run by yeah. Sean Forbes who worked for Rough Trade in England. Did you have a connection yes. through Rough Trade? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, every once in a while I talked to him on the phone when I was working, uh, for them. So, Yeah. That's we my, we put out a split with Hardskin, his band. Oh wow! So we are all connected in some way on the show. Well, I I like the fact that we were on a record with Chumbawamba way before they got uh uh well known. So uh, I was very very happy with that. Yeah, fantastic band like that early stuff, and also Watt Tyler as well, Sean's band, and and Doom. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, yes, and um. Mambo Taxi, who were, uh, there was a wave of female British bands uh, around that time, too. And um, Mambo Taxi uh, did a, a song on that uh, EP um, called Brett from Suede, You Need to Get Laid by a Man. Because that was when Suede were first coming out, and 
they're singer was saying things like, oh, I'm bisexual, but I've never had an experience with a man. And it's just like, you fucking poser. There's, <laughs> that's like what you say to get press attention in England. So um, that, was, that was a good little EP, seven-inch EP. Yeah, one of the best song titles of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I say, I could go on forever, John, but will you come back at some point in the future and do a part two? Uh, yeah, sure. One final well, what, question. What, what, what haven't we covered? Well, the one, <laughs> I, well, believe me, there's a whole, I got to get to all the other, I got to get to when the records start coming out on turn of tentacles. There's a lot more to get to, but, okay. that, yeah, but, yeah. but one thing I do want to bring up is because the thing that comes up a lot on this show, as far as getting people into punk and I think had a massive reach was that Angus soundtrack. How did that come about? And, you know, like one of the, your song on that is so killer. I was listening to it just today. And, um, you know, like how did that whole thing come about? Being on tour with Green Day in 94, we got asked to open for them in the summer. And at that point, they had one video out for Longview and it had become really popular. So they had booked a summer tour of clubs. I would say the smallest was like 400 people and the biggest was 1,200. But they had gotten so big in the time between those shows were booked and the shows happened that the entire tour was sold out except actually for a couple places in Canada. It start, We started in Western Canada and then um, went into the States. So um, like Calgary and Edmonton weren't full, but then every other place on the on the tour after that was. And, um, uh, the, it was July and that was when they got, they had the script for Angus with them and they were reading it to see if they'd been offered it. And, you know, they said, we want you to, you know, have a song and, and have other songs, uh, other bands of your choice uh, in this movie. So uh, they, uh, for the soundtrack. So um, they asked us if we were interested and we were like, yes. So then somebody called us up. I think it was Green Day's manager and said, hey, we want you to do uh, a cover of Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe's, uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And I said, well, uh, um, it's a great song. Uh, we're not going to do a better version of it than Elvis. But, um, but I said, you know, that was in a big soundtrack, like, within the last year. And the guy's like, oh, we didn't know that. There was, a, like, an a R&B version of uh, that song in The Bodyguard, that Whitney Houston movie. Yeah. And, the, and it sold, like, 12 million copies and made Nick Lowe a million bucks. Uh, for being the songwriter. So I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's probably a good idea. It's just been kind of overexposed right now. That was kind of my excuse because I didn't want to do the song. I said, I'd rather have you do one of our, use one of our songs. And they did. So they picked one of the songs. Uh, you know, they listened to the songs that we already had out. And uh, that was the one that they picked, Deep Water. So did you get to help pick any of the other bands? Was that like the compilation that you envisioned? No, that was Green Day's Choice. Okay. So they got bands that they liked on there, like uh, Ash and Us and The Muffs. And uh, um, I would have to look at it to see who – there's there's some other lookup bands on there, I think. I, I think Tilt's on there, but and, and maybe the Riverdales. And, and Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Smoking Popes, of course, from Chicago as well. 
and and uh, the the Goo Goo Dolls, who I guess you know twin. Oh no, I guess they were on. Anyway, they were they had the punk past as well. Um, I mean, all I have to do is grab the CD. It's right here. <laughs> um, yeah, Riverdale's Weezer. Yeah. Um, Dancehall Crashers, Tilt. Yeah. Yeah, it, and, and other bands you said. Yeah, no, it's it's and it's like, but I think it's you know Deep Water, which obviously you know it's it's from other places, but just that song just cuts through. And that compilation, I guess it showed up in music clubs like Columbia House, but it's amazing how many times that album's come up on this podcast. I don't, I don't really understand it. I feel like it didn't sell that well at the time because the movie was not a big hit. Mm-hmm. The movie was kind of compromised. Um, one of the things about the original short story that it was based on is that uh the i forget one of the parents i haven't seen the movie in 20 years um <laughs> one of the parents i think it's the the father is gay or the mother is gay but it's alluded to in the movie it was explicit in the original story and i remember green day being saying that they were disappointed how that was kind of covered up mm-hmm. like apparently it was it was filmed and then the the explicitly gay references were removed. So, um, so my, my memory of it was that it wasn't that big of a hit, but it's still in print. It's never gone out of print. And the reason I know that is because I've been getting little royalty checks, like for a dollar 87 and $2 and 13 cents <laughs> for the last 25 years. I mean, I actually did get a chunk of money at one point. We, so getting on that soundtrack, Here's how it works. They paid, they offered us 10 grand, five grand for the rights to the song, the composition, and then five grand for the performance. So we, this is how important it is to own your own publishing. Uh, If you're a musician, you can sell your publishing and get an advance. But when royalties get paid, you know, you know, um, royalties on uh, sales, half goes to the publisher half goes to the writer. Well, being a publisher is nothing but filling out a form. So we've made tens of thousands of dollars over the years by not selling or getting, you know, by having our publishing and holding on to it. So um, that's the only time, I think it's the only time we've been on a major label. We had something on a major label. I know I'm going to think that's wrong eventually, but maybe we're on a compilation somewhere, but um, but yeah, usually those things go out of print, like a, a music soundtrack, it'll go out of print, but it's stayed in print ever since it came out in 95, which is pretty un- unusual, but I think that's cause it kept selling and green day continued to be a well-known band. I think it's all, I think it's also part of that like spat of less than successful movies that put out way more successful soundtracks like empire records like mall mm-hmm. rats and stuff like that yeah that um sense. yeah the glory days of the soundtrack long gone long gone long gone well <laughs> it's I've like compilation on. albums compilation albums used to be important now they're really not that was how you learned about a lot of different bands back when you didn't have the opportunity to stream everything so Absolutely. Well, like going back to like you know the the first compilations, those those bomb compilations, like how many bands were exposed through those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Uh, well, as I say, this has gone on for a long time now, and anytime you want to come back, the door is always open, John. Thank you so much for everything. You are welcome. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, John will be back for a part two because, yes, John, indeed, there's a lot more questions to ask. <laughs> really just scratched the surface, but, uh, you know, that'll be uh, something to look forward to down the road. Uh, man, I, I, I really, I also talked to my brother. I, we also met them in the back of Rotate This when they played an in-store at Rotate This. And uh, I forgot to bring it up this time, but, you know, save that for the part two as well. All right. Speaking of down the road, next week on the show, I am joined by someone I've actually uh, played on stage with before, someone I've interviewed before, but I've never had a, this person on the podcast till now. Next week on the show, Moby will be here, and uh, we talk about a lot of cool stuff. It's a very interesting conversation, and uh, I think you'll be... I, I think you'll be surprised by his take on punk rock and, and you know, just kind of uh, his evaluation of it. It's a... It's a real interesting conversation. I'm excited for everyone to hear this. Uh, but that's it for this week. Remember, uh, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. Go out there. Read as much as you can. Get yourself educated on what's going on. Uh, it's it's a scary time right now, but it's also a really hopeful time right now. So it's up to you to kind of go out there and get involved. Show up, you know, if you can. Support financially if you can. And, and, and just be informed, you know, and, and challenge people around you. If they need to be challenged on, you know, what they're thinking, just, you know, have that conversation. It might be awkward as shit, but, you know, now's, now's the time to have that. Uh, also, go out there and make your own culture. In this time of being uh, still, still kind of locked away if you're, you know, trying to stay safe out there. And if not, you know, you know hopefully you're wearing a mask and, and you know, but it's still, it's still a weird time. But Try and make your own culture. It really helps. It really helps to kind of put yourself out there. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying that. No, definitely, maybe, maybe not putting yourself out there helps. But making your own culture and kind of building your own worlds, that definitely helps. Putting yourself out there opens you up to to all sorts of uh, criticism. So maybe <laughs> don't put yourself out there. You know, make your own culture, but, you know, keep it keep it locked in. That's probably the safer way to play this. Anyway, uh, sign your organ donor cards. Always sign your organ donor cards. Uh, if you... If, because it, it helps, you know, if, if you're not going to need those organs anymore. Um, and that's it. Uh, I love you. Stay safe out there. Please stay safe out there. And I will see you on the next episode of the show. And it's a good one. Thank you. <laughs>